I'm extremely worried about my mother. This year has been a turbulent one for my family and I think her fragile psyche might just break. It began after my brother took his life. Initially, my mother, father and I came together and the family was stronger than ever. But as so often happens, time went on, life got busy and the divide ensued. My mother craved constant emotional support, but it became overwhelming. My father was always tired from work. He was still grieving internally at the loss of his son and my mom's daily breakdowns became too much to handle. Mom began cutting herself and threatening her own suicide as a last ditch effort to win my father's love and affection, but it was futile. With the signing of a few papers, a 20 year marriage evaporated. Mom went into a complete tailspin post-divorce. She stopped cooking, stopped cleaning, she stopped bathing, and she stopped talking. We lived in a house of silence until the nighttime came when I could hear howls of heartbreak echo through the home. I loved my mom, but I knew it wasn't healthy for me to stay in this situation. The morning after another sleepless night, I told her I wanted to go live with my dad, at least until she pulled herself together. For the first time in weeks, she spoke, but it was the same she had used on my father. She told me if I leave, she'll have nothing to live for and kill herself. I told her she had stopped living a while ago. She's simply surviving at this point. I told her she needed some help, and when I got home from school, we could talk about it. When I arrived home, an eerie feeling crept over me. The house was pitch black, and my mom was nowhere in sight. I investigated the downstairs and found nothing. I checked her bedroom upstairs, as well as the bathroom, but they were clear. I walked down the hallway to my room and saw a dimly lit candle on the dresser. It was illuminating a note. I began reading, and a chill ran up my spine just after the first few words. This wasn't a note. It was a suicide letter. My chest was pounding, and I began to sweat. With each cryptic line, my heart sank deeper, and tears flooded my eyes until I reached the bottom of the letter. When I reached the final two words, I became frozen in fear, and the letter slipped from my grip. The final two words were simply a first and last name. My name. Suddenly, I felt a cold breeze on my door slamming behind me. The candle went out, and the room went dark. My mom passed away when I was just a few months old. She was a nature enthusiast who lived for hiking, but consequently, it would be the death of her as well. Her body was found at the bottom of a mountainside that she frequented. The impact of the fall was so severe that my family had to have a closed casket funeral. I only know my mom through stories that my dad tells me and the many videotapes she recorded before her passing. My mother loved to document her hikes. She would give tips, record the beautiful scenery, and in some videos, just discuss life. I watched hundreds of these videos, and it's the only real connection I feel to her. My mom was the breadwinner, and since her passing, the family had been financially strapped. My father had taken on two jobs to make ends meet, but it's to the point where we'll have to downsize and move. Oddly enough, I think our neighbor Ralph is taking it harder than me and my dad. Ralph has been like a second father to me, always there to talk to, always buying me things I need and offering help whenever he can. My dad said he's a creep, but I think he's a good guy and I'll miss him. As I was packing up my things from the shed, I saw something strange. 
A floorboard was missing that I hadn't noticed before and there was a filthy trash bag with a couple videos and a camcorder inside. My curiosity peaked and I decided to go to my room and watch. I popped the first tape in and couldn't believe my eyes. It was my mom with Ralph. They were naked in a room. Jesus Christ, it was a sex tape. I removed the tape before my eyes were burned out of the sockets. I put the second tape in and saw my mom crying into the camera. She said that she was pregnant and Ralph was the father. I cried and screamed into my pillow with anger and despair. I felt bad for myself. I felt bad for my father. I was furious with Ralph, but did he even know? Did dad? Then I noticed the tape remained in the camcorder. It was my mom on one of the hikes. Wait, I recognize those clothes. Those were the clothes that she died in. This was recorded the day of her death. As I watched, my mother reached the mountainside where she had fell to her death. I was about to eject the tape, but then I heard something. It was the voice of a man, and my mom seemed startled when they spoke. Then it happened. The camera captured the last moment when a man's hand pushes my mother to her death. What are you watching there? I heard coming from the window. The same voice that I heard in the video. An eerie silence filled the air as my dad and I locked eyes. I haven't seen a clock or the outside for a while, so I can't be certain, but I believe it's day 17 of my forced incarceration. Constant screams and demonic laughter echo through the hallways of this hellhole. The shock therapy torture has increased each day, and they've even begun experimenting with lobotomy surgery with horrific results. Asylum patients are seen as subhuman to many. Once dropped off here, it's like entering a portal to another world. Families don't visit, and the state leaves full control of the facilities to the doctors, nurses, and guards. That means, as this torture is ratcheted up, no one from the outside world is coming to stop it. Nobody knows or even cares what's happening behind these walls. Food rations have been put in place for the sheer purpose of inflicting suffering. They force medication into us, oftentimes on empty stomach, which creates awful nausea and discomfort. They prance around the facility in matching white uniforms, bestowing the phony title of doctors and nurses upon themselves. But in reality, they're just an organized mob. I've been observing the behavior at night, and what I've seen is bone chilling. Increasingly, people have been forcefully removed from their rooms and not returned. In the last few days, I've been marched into the cafeteria. I've been overwhelmed with a pungent odor. I tell myself I'm crazy, and it can't be what I think it is. My mind races with inhuman thoughts, but I'm starving, so I eat the chunky meat soup as served and don't dare to question what it is. I've only remained alive due to my obedience. The beating has become increasingly violent and they've begun raiding rooms without notice for contraband. Paranoia has set in and they believe that we're planning a revolt. Discovery of this note is a certain death sentence, so I must hide it away now. I pray order can be restored, but if not, I leave this as evidence of the horrible conditions and the atrocities that have been committed under this roof. God save us all. Dr. Williams. Day 17 of inmates running the asylum. My daughter begged for a puppy, 
and I finally caved. After work, I'll take her over to the local puppy shop, run by old Earl. Earl had been running the establishment for close to three decades now, and had become somewhat of an unofficial mayor of our small town. The service was friendly, he was very reasonable with pricing, and the dogs always seemed to have a full lifespan. My shift ran late, and I scrambled to reach the shop with my daughter as Earl was closing. I even managed to ding his sign while parking in the rush to get there. He was kind enough to let us in as we made small talk while they gave my daughter a few treats and told her to pick the lucky pup. As my daughter gleefully ran around the shop, I took old Earl out to inspect the sign damage. He laughed it off and said that he'll call it even with the purchase of a pup. When we walked back inside, my daughter was missing. It was a small shop and I began to think she wandered outside to find us at some point. I tried to keep calm but Earl filled me with concern when he told me he would need to check the basement because the drugs used for euthanasia are stored down there. After a thorough check, Earl said she wasn't down there, and I was filled with some relief. Moments later, my daughter wandered back inside through the entrance door. I pulled her close to me and told her to never scare me like that again. She looked upset, and when I asked her what puppy she had chosen, she told me she just wanted to go home. I apologized to Earl for the inconvenience, told him she must be frazzled from my panic of her missing, and we would be back tomorrow. As we drove home, I asked my daughter why she wandered off and why she couldn't choose a puppy. Tears filled her eyes, and she told me that she had run out of dog treats and looked around the shop for more. That's when she walked down to the basement area and became upset. She told me it wasn't fair that all the dogs upstairs would find a home and the kids locked in the basement wouldn't. I laid poolside perfecting my tan for the start of school next month. Mom was in the kitchen cooking her famous fettuccine alfredo and dad was on his way home with a movie from Redbox. My life was perfect but everything was about to change with the arrival of a new neighbor next door. He was a former police officer, probably mid-fifties, possessed a firm drill sergeant-like tone, but was very friendly and talkative. Initially, he seemed like a good fit for the neighborhood. He was cordial and always made an effort to wave or say hi, and the presence of someone with law enforcement background provided a sense of security. But things began to unravel quickly, and the catalyst seemed to be me. My neighbor took a sudden and keen interest in me. When I went outside, I could feel his eyes examining me. He would always wander over and try to start conversations, but as soon as he heard or saw my parents, he would leave. He asked me if I had any social media accounts. When I lied and said no, he asked if he could take a picture of me and proceeded to snap a pic before I could reply. I felt completely unnerved and frightened by his intentions for me. For all I knew, he could have been a murderer or a pedophile living mere feet from my home. I knew I needed to delve deeper, so one night I aimed my telescope at his window and what I saw only amplified the alarm bells going off in my head. This man was fixated on a picture of me on his phone, and I could even see a small stack of photos on his nightstand, a young girl's image on top. My blood ran cold at this, but confirmed my fear. He must be a pedophile. The next day I saw him sneakily rummaging through our trash can. 
I watched in horror and disbelief as he removed a used tampon, got into his car, and sped off in the night. That was the final straw. I knew that morning that I'd have to alert my parents and get in contact with the police. I awoke to the sound of police sirens and loud commotion downstairs. I hopped out of bed and saw my parents being taken away in handcuffs. I started screaming and crying as I rushed towards the doors, but I was stopped by the neighbor. With a horrified expression, he muttered, I'm so sorry, those aren't your real parents. You were kidnapped and missing for the past 14 years. DNA test confirmed it. I only knew Michelle for a month, but it was truly a month to remember. I first met her when she was carving out a high school bully's eye with a butter knife, and we were more or less inseparable after that. She was a few years older than me, so of course, I fell instantly in love, but I knew deep down we were destined for friendship and little else. I knew this deep down because she made it clear that she was going to die in roughly a month. Can't love a dead chick, she'd say. At first, I just thought it was a clever way of avoiding the awkwardness of turning me down, but at some point, I came close to believing her. It was just something about her, something extremely free, careless, and unconfined, refreshingly brave and outspoken and honest. When I met her, I was going through the most depressing period of my life. I was constantly bullied and belittled at school. My younger sisters were both hospitalized. Each needed a transplant to survive. Jenna needed a heart, Chloe needed kidneys, and my parents had their hands full covering the medical expenses. I think we all in our own ways were on the verge of just giving up, just letting go. I was saved by Michelle, I had no doubt about it. If she hadn't shown up when Brett was beating the shit out of me, I would have killed myself that day. I was just so sick of it, sick of the beating, sick of the abuse, Sick of being alone. But Michelle came out of nowhere, threw him into the wall, kicked his nose halfway up his brain, and proceeded to dig his eye out with the aforementioned cutlery. He never touched me again. You'd think she would get into trouble after doing something like that, but it was never reported. Brett claimed it was an accident, that he had crashed his moped. I think he feared that Michelle would kill him if he said otherwise. I, for one, had no doubt she would have. That was just who she was. Michelle never went to school. She said it was because she knew she was going to die. Why bother with bullshit like school then? No, she was all about enjoying life to the fullest. Kicking assholes in the face. Fucking over people who fucked over others. She wanted to leave this world a better place than she found it. And by her logic, this was done exclusively by ridding it of shitbags, one way or another. How do you know you're going to die? I asked her once. My parents tell me every day, and they are good for their word. She wouldn't explain it in detail, just that she was raised knowing the exact date and time of her death, down to the very second, and that it was just meant to be. That's what they told her. In death, her life would have meaning. At first, I didn't think much of it, you know? She was a crazy girl, and always said weird stuff like that. I was kind of baking on it, all being some bizarre joke or something. But when the month drew to a close, I was getting really worried it might be all true. I'd grown too attached to her. Every minute I wasn't at school or at the hospital was spent with her, and the thought of losing her, my only friend, made me horribly depressed. 
This last week, I was really on edge. My twins were in bad shape, and my parents were spending every waking minute at the hospital. They had yet to find donor matches, and time was running out. It felt like my time was running out too. The dark thoughts were returning, and I started imagining how I would kill myself should Michelle ever leave me. I found it strange that she never invited me home. I mean, friends do that, right? Invite each other over? She had been to our house several times. She's even crashed on the couch a few times, and we would often watch movies there. Raid my parents' liquor cabinet, get wasted, and generally just have fun. But I'd never been to her house, not once. I didn't even know where she lived. So one night, I decided to follow her. What was there to lose, really? Maybe I could get some answers from her parents or something. Some way to explain why she was so convinced that she was dying. Maybe they lied to her. Some sort of cult? A way to form her beliefs into accepting the unacceptable. A way to control her. I stalked her for 30 minutes, lurking in the shadows as she paced down the streets. When she headed to the outskirts, I started getting worried, and when she took the narrow trail through the forest, I was almost having a full-on panic attack. Where the hell was she heading? As far as I knew, there weren't any houses for miles. About halfway into the forest, I suddenly lost her. It was like she vanished without a trace. I walked back and forth, up and down, but there was no sign of her at all. Eventually, I had to give up and return home, my mind growing even darker. I remember the last day like it was yesterday, every minute of it, crisp and clear and vivid in my mind. Every scent, every sound, every muscle moving on her perfect face, all those smiles and kind words, everything. The last day came and went, but I didn't know it was the last day. If I'd known, I would have told her how much I cared for her, how much she meant to me, how much I owed her my life and sanity. Without her, I wouldn't be alive. But I didn't know, and I never told her. I hope she somehow realized it, and that she could see it in my eyes and my actions every day, but I can never be sure. She just acted normal, you know? She was Michelle that day too. Same carefree spirit, the same wild, devil-may-care attitude. We spent the afternoon smoking weed, watching silly cartoons, laughing, and enjoying each other's company. But when she left, I knew something was up. I don't know how. I guess there was some detail, some little thing that alarmed me. But having replayed and analyzed that day over and over again in my mind, I can't think of anything. Nothing. But I knew. So I followed her again. This time, I stayed closer, always having her in my sights, always knowing exactly where she was. She was walking considerably slower that night, almost like she knew I was behind her, almost like she wanted me to follow her. The air was cold and crisp, and whenever autumn draws close, I can step outside, take a deep breath, and relive the exact moment when she suddenly turned on her heels to face me. This is it, she said. This is the day I die. She walked over to me and handed me an envelope. It was light, but there was definitely something in it. A letter, perhaps. You will need this. She stroked my hair gently. When the time comes, you'll know what to do with it. I don't understand, I said. Please, let's just leave. Let's just get out of here. She smiled and kissed me on the cheek. 
If I concentrate real hard, I could still conjure up the smell of her perfume. This is goodbye, she murmured softly, but you will come to understand that it was always meant to be. I reached out to hug her when they emerged from the darkness. Two tall figures clad in dark robes, an old man and an elderly woman, their milky white hair flowing gently in the breeze. They had this solemn expression on their face, the kind you see at funerals, an expression of acceptance to sorrow and despair because it's just a part of life. Michelle pushed me away forcefully and by the time I regained my balance, it was already too late. Her throat had been slit from either side of her neck, a perfect cross, left to right, right to left. Blood was squirting out, coloring the dull brown of the roadside, a deep shade of crimson. The robed couple swiftly stepped back into the shadows, leaving me desperately clutching the lifeless body of Michelle, screaming my lungs out, wailing like an animal into the cold night. The paramedics came out later. I have no idea who called them. She had no ID on her, so they asked a bunch of questions. I didn't know the answers to any of them. She was Michelle, that's all I knew. Her name was Michelle, she was my friend, and she was the best person I've ever met. The ambulance let me ride with her to the hospital, but quickly pronounced her dead. She lost too much blood, they told me. It wasn't my fault, there wasn't anything I could have done, but this didn't offer much comfort. I was devastated, totally broken. The dark thoughts resurfacing once again, this time with much more power than before. What's in your hand? One of the paramedics asked. Does it belong to Michelle? I glanced at the envelope. It was completely drenched in blood, much like me. And then it suddenly hit me. I don't know what it was, but it was like she told me. When the time comes, you'll know what to do with it. So without thinking, I just handed it over to him. He sort of held it up, like somehow he could see through it if he got a better angle of it, before he gently opened it. Well, I'll be damned, he said. I'm better now. I still have lots of problems understanding what happened, but I am doing better. I have come to terms with it, with the fact that everything happened just the way it was supposed to happen, and it has shaped me, shaped my life into what I am today. Michelle didn't just save me, she saved my entire family, every aspect of my life, and I'm guessing you're wondering what was in the envelope. Maybe you have figured it out, maybe not. It was a donor card, and as it turned out, she was a perfect match for my twin sisters. Can't love a dead chick, she said. That's the only thing she was ever wrong about. Old Jebediah Worthy fell down the stairs in his house last night. An unfortunate accident, they said. Last Thursday, Myra Fisher's house burned down with her in it. We all knew that cigarettes would be the death of her, but figured cancer would deliver the punch, not an inferno. The Monday before that, Giles Northcutt got locked in the freezer in his butcher shop. I tried to shame with a faulty lock mechanism. And on the first of the month, Lucy Nagel had one too many of her county famous snickerdoodles and her poor little heart couldn't take it anymore. Four suspicious deaths in less than a month, and yet the police see and do nothing. How can they be so fucking blind? I've tried telling people, anyone I can find. Someone is hurting the sinners in this town. The drunks, 
the gypsies, the rapists, and thieves, but they all just laugh at me. The only thing Worthy is guilty of is having sermons run too long. If baking cookies is a crime, then sure, lock Lucy up for life. Yeah, 750 for a pound of ground beef is kind of extortionate, but it's Giles. The only person Myra Fisher ever hurt was herself. But they were wrong. I know they were wrong. Jebediah Worthy is a deviant who told any young girl he could find that sleeping with him would absolve them of their sins. Myra Fisher was an alcoholic junkie who would lie, steal, and beg for her next fix. Giles Northcutt used his prices to fund his gambling addiction, and Lucy Nagel watched her mother die a slow and painful death so that recipe could be hers. She didn't even throw away the rat poison. It's stuff like this that makes me so disappointed when I see my best friend Keith drive drunk, so I decided to be a good friend to him. I'll buy all the rounds for him, and hell, I'll even offer to be his designated driver. I'll drop him off at the outside of his house. I live just down the block, so no one will see me walk from his house to mine. I position him in the front seat and turn on the carbon monoxide. It finally occurs to him what's happening, but the muscle relaxer slipped into his third brandy of the night, leaves him powerless. Just before I close the door, I lean in real close and whisper to him, I warned you. It took me 10 years to make Detective, which was about 7 years longer than it should have. After that, it only took me another 2 for them to put me on homicide. I was the first woman ever in the division. Once I got there, even the assholes in charge couldn't argue with my success rate, so pretty soon thereafter, I became their go-to guy. The stranger the case, the more likely it would wind up on my desk. We had a series of six murders over the last three months that were so close in method that they had to be related. A bona fide serial killer was on the loose in our precinct. The killer's M.O. was clinical, and the way he carried the killings out was chilling. He'd break into a house, probably one that he cased to make sure it was safe, and the victim would be alone. He would kill the victim with a single small caliber shot to the forehead. Then, he'd pose the victims in a respectful way and take photographs. Other than the hole in the foreheads, you wouldn't have known anything was wrong with them. The way we knew he took photographs, and the chilling part, was because he mailed them to the station in lavender envelopes, and he'd use the victim's address as the return address. No name, just that address, and always five pictures. The street, the front door, and three of the victim. Taunting? Maybe but I think he was just sick. Our break? The asshole licked the stamp. He had been in the army a few years back, so we made a DNA match and brought him in without incident. We executed a search warrant of his house as well, and apparently we found some fairly incriminating evidence. I sat down to interview him, as much out of curiosity as anything. We already had him cold. Why? I haven't done anything. Right, right. I'd ask for a lawyer, but I haven't done anything. Sure, I understand. You look familiar. I figure you've probably seen my picture in the paper at some point. Do you have relatives in town? Before I could answer, another detective came in and threw one of the lavender envelopes on the table. Looks like we might have another one, the detective said. We found this at his house. Must have got him right before you could mail it. 
I looked at the envelope. There was something familiar about the return address. I couldn't quite... All at once, my blood ran cold. My hands shook as I tore the envelope open and pulled out the photograph. There it was, a street I knew so well. No, 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 God, please. I barely had the coordination in my fingers to move the first picture out of the way, but once I finally managed it, I saw my daughter's front door painted that unmistakable shade of blue in photograph number two. You're a murderer, the scrawny looking man said. I know you did it. I scowled. I was just about to sleep when my neighbor decided to start spouting his usual bullshit. Look man, can we skip this crap? I have no idea what you are talking about and I was just sleeping. A lie, but I wanted this idiot to be gone. I closed the door, but the neighbor blocked it with his foot. You murderous freak, he spat. I can smell the blood on your hands. I blinked. Are you stupid? I told you a trillion times. I'm not a serial killer. He did not believe me. He never did. Look, I'm going to sleep. I pushed my neighbor away and shut the door closed. I groaned and went back to my bed. Fucking neighbor. I fell asleep half an hour later, only to wake up with someone banging on my door. I opened my eyes and found my walls painted red. The police charged into my house and found me in the middle of a pile of cut limbs. Blood was sprayed on all my walls. I was shell-shocked when the police arrested me. An anonymous call was made that night. Someone had seen me dragging suspicious bags into my house that were the size of a person. The police decided to check it and found me in my bedroom surrounded by body parts and blood all over me. I tried to explain that I was innocent. But when they found the bone saw with my DNA on it, hidden underneath the floor, the jury made their decision. As I was drafted to prison, I saw my neighbor in the crowd that had gathered outside Blackside City's court hall. As I passed him, he whispered, Rot in jail, you psycho. He had this insane look in his eyes, and as I was dragged away from him, I screamed, all while staring at the red stains on his nails. This letter is from a confessed serial killer to his 13-year-old daughter. Dear Samantha, I'm sorry I haven't been around for a while, but you're going to have to be strong, just like I'm trying to be strong for you. I don't know how much your mother has told you, but sooner or later you're going to hear about what daddy did, and I want to tell you why I did it. They're going to tell you I killed those seven kids, that I tortured them first, chaining them in that shed in the woods. You remember the place. You used to build a fort there and play princess of the castle. You'll always be my princess, even after everything that has happened there. You're going to hear about how the victims were starved and forced to eat the one that came before them, and how that they were chained up until the next one came around to eat them up too. You're going to see my name brought up on websites and social media. Photos of the murders are going to be uploaded. And you're going to have to see those corpses stripped of flesh and put on display for the whole world to see. You're going to hear priests condemning me to hell and the news stations using my name as propaganda for whatever self-serving platform they can find. And worst of all, you're going to be feared because your association with me. But you have your whole life ahead of you. And no matter how bad it seems now, this is not your defining moment. The weeks or months until everyone forgets won't last forever. These killings will not determine who you are. 
I won't be coming home again, but someday after years have stretched this memory thin, it's gonna be like none of this has ever happened. That's why I did it. That's why I confessed. So you could move on and forget. That's why I never told the police that you were the one that led them into the woods. That's why I turned myself in as soon as I found the bodies. I don't care how many of them you got. There's only one person I care about protecting, and that's my princess. If this is what you want, then you should have it. You deserve everything in this world. I know that you told me that you weren't going to stop leading people into the woods, but at least try to be more careful next time. Don't take kids. Don't take anyone they're going to look for. And when I'm gone, I hope you find someone who loves you as much as daddy does. I hope they love you so much, they confess for you, and you can keep playing forever. Don't ever stop playing, princess. The world is yours. Love, daddy. This letter was confiscated after an inmate tried to smuggle it out of the visitation room. So what do you make of it? I asked the plumber, Steve. I believe his name is Steve. Sure as hell looks like blood to me, he said, staring at the rusty red discharge dripping down the wall. But I'm no biochemist or anything. My wife had jokingly referred to it as blood, so that's the first thing I told the plumber. You know, as a joke. Hey plumber Steve, we've got a really bad case of the old blood dripping down the walls here. Mind taking a look? You're kidding, right? I stared at him in disbelief. He seemed like the kind of guy that would think this kind of stuff was funny. You know, stupid. I don't know, man. He stroked his chin nonchalantly. The color checks out. It is roughly the same texture, wouldn't you say? This guy, I thought to myself. I'm not even sure why I called the plumber in the first place. The weird thing was, there weren't any pipes anywhere near that wall in question. I'd gone over every inch of the place, read through all the blueprints, even drilled a hole at the base of the roof. There was simply nothing there. Maybe you got a corpse or something up there. He chuckled nervously. <laughs> Have you checked on your wife lately? I really do hate bad comedians. They're right up there with people who use waltz instead of while, and people who chew with their mouth open. I just shook my head and snickered half-heartedly. So there's nothing you can do? I asked. Hey man, if there's no pipe or hole or anything I can enter, he winked suggestively, then shrugged. I sighed and thanked him for the service to my basement, which is to say I told him he was useless. He replied with a douchey smirk and handed me a bill that had me reconsidering my chosen career. No luck? My wife asked. I shook my head. I just don't get it, I said. This shouldn't be fucking rocket surgery. I think you mean brain science, she giggled. But I'll admit, it's pretty damn weird. We'd only had this house for a little over a week, but I was already regretting buying it. Sure, it was relatively cheap. Who doesn't love a big old mortgage? But there had been nothing but problems with it since we moved in. Lights flickering, drafty spots all over, strange noises in the wall, and then the leak in the basement yesterday to top it all off. And don't even get me started on the neighbors. Maybe we should talk to the neighbors, my wife suggested, peering out the kitchen window. Which one? I asked. Let's see, we've got a big old weirdo, the demented old crone, the blonde surfer guy with the seemingly endless supply of identical white hoodies. Or let's not forget the creepy middle-aged twins. 
Come on. She poked me in the ribs, playfully. Stop being a grump. I'm sure they're nice people. I managed to dodge them all thus far. I heard someone knocking on the door like crazy once, but I was half asleep from the full night of failing to locate the damn sound in the walls. So I buried my head under the pillow and ignored whoever it was. I suppose I couldn't avoid them forever though. That's not the neighborly thing to do, I guess. I'm sure, I replied sarcastically. Hey, shouldn't you be at work? Just heading out now. She kissed me on the cheek. Love you. Don't go crazy down in the basement, you hear? No promises. I smiled, but I'll try. My wife worked wacky shifts. I guess that's what nurses do. I couldn't keep on top of her crazy work schedule half the time, so I often found myself confused when I woke up and she wasn't there, or when she suddenly came home in the middle of the night. I mostly worked remotely. Short-term freelance contracts, which basically meant whenever I felt like it. I hadn't been feeling like it since we bought this damned house, which was becoming something of an issue. It has to be the foundation, right? I muttered to myself, bringing my coffee downstairs with me. I fixated on the wall and the noises. Couldn't seem to let them go. The basement was fairly small and cramped, and we were originally going to use it for storage. That's why I had to fix a leak post-haste, lest all our useless crap that we never used would be rendered unusable. Maybe rusty water? I suggested, carefully balancing my coffee down the uneven stairs. I stopped abruptly on the last step, spilling my coffee all over myself. Normally I would have shrieked in a rather unmanly fashion as a burning hot liquid ran down my leg, but in this instance, the shock of what I was seeing far outweighed the physical pain. The wall was so squeaky clean, not a single spot on it. I carefully put down the remnants of my coffee on the stairs and walked over to investigate the impossibility of it. But before I got more than a few steps, the one light bulb hanging from the ceiling started flickering like crazy before completely going dark moments later. Son of a bitch, I mumbled, stumbling around blindly, knocking over several boxes of God knows what. The doorbell suddenly rang from upstairs. I must have knocked over every last thing in the basement in a fit of panic before I finally found the stairs, knocking over my coffee cup in the process. Fucking shit, I shrieked unmanly as a hot coffee spilled over my feet. You alright there, fella? A cheery male voice called from the darkness of the basement. Holy shit, I yelled instinctively turning towards the sound, which in turn led me tumbling down the stairs, landing flat on my back. You know, a pair of floating glowing emerald eyes uttered. I know who used to live here. Who the fuck is there? I demanded. Get the fuck out of my house. I do apologize. The eyes chuckled. I keep forgetting you needed light to see. The light bulb lit up, flickering erratically like a seizuring strobe light. Every split second or so, illuminating a slender man wearing jeans and a white hoodie. He was grinning widely, his sparkling green eyes darting all over the basement. Hey, uh, you're, you're the, uh, surfer guy, neighbor? Spot on, he smiled, although I haven't surfed in quite some time. I hope you don't mind, but I figured I'd let myself in, since you seemed rather preoccupied. He paced around the room idly, gracefully avoiding the shit I knocked over without even looking. How the hell did you get down here so fast? And how did I not hear you coming down the stairs? He hung himself. The man said, the previous owner, right over there, see, 
He was pointing at a spot in the corner of the room. I squinted and blinked feverishly, like I somehow expected to see him dangling there. Did you somewhat expect to see him dangling there? The man chuckled. I'm sorry, you'll just have to take my word for it. I sat up uncomfortably, my back digging into the lower step of the stairs. I couldn't think of anything to say. What do you say to a person who manifests out of thin air in your basement? Can you maybe fix the light? I said, shielding my eyes from the seizure-inducing blinking. The man laughed and slapped his forehead theatrically. Why, of course, I always forget these silly little things. He snapped his fingers and the light instantly stabilized. I swallowed deeply as his gleaming green gaze settled on me. I'm here about your plumbing, so to speak, he said, pointing to the wall. I've been told you are having some issues with blood flooding your basement. You know the stuff, right? Thick crimson liquid, usually confined inside of a body. Uh, I said. Yeah, I mean, it's not blood. That was just a joke, and it's not there now, so I guess it's fixed. Are you sure? He said, grinning wildly. Maybe you should take another look. I glanced at the wall in question and let out another unmanly shriek as I realized it was literally covered in deep red oozing sludge flowing incessantly from a single point close to the ceiling all the way down to the floor. That has to be a couple gallons worth, the man said, stroking his chin. Quite a mess. Should see a plumber about that. I edged back against the stairs. Isn't, isn't that why you're here? I asked. Oh yeah, you're right. He threw his head back and laughed. I'm here to remind you. Remind me? Of what? I murmured. That you already know where it comes from, fella. You've always known. Just take some digging, is all. You keep locking it away. I I don't understand. Oh, you will, he grinned, his emerald eyes burrowing into mine. Come on, buddy. Let's go see your wife. She'll show you. He sauntered past me and beckoned for me to follow him as he started ascending the stairs. You coming or what? He asked. I haven't got all damn day. My wife? Desha? I said, shifting restlessly. She's at work. The man shrugged and smiled. You sure about that? He said. You sure she didn't come home while you were sleeping? Sleeping? No. It was midday, wasn't it? The plumber came around noon, and she left her work an hour or so later. There's no way in hell I spent that long in the basement. Ah, I see what's going on. The man slapped his forehead again. It's a temporal thingy, messing with you. Yeah, it will do that sometimes. Some algorithmic snafu or other. I need to talk to the engineers about that. What damnation are you talking about? I said. Temporal thingy? He laughed again. A long hearty laugh. Nicely put Wolfgang, he said. But it's easier if I show you. He put his hands into his pockets and whistled cheerfully as he skipped up the remaining steps, disappearing through the door moments later. Last call, he yelled. I'm a busy man. Got places to burn, people to eat. You know how it is. I sat for a while in the dim light, desperately trying to make sense of the situation. There was no such thing as sense, of course. Everything that was happening since the plumber left defied logic and reason, but somehow it all seemed so familiar, like I'd seen it happen before. I sighed deeply and followed him up to the first floor. There you are, woofy boy. He grinned as I emerged through the door. 
I was just about to call off our arrangement, but I'm glad you came to your senses. Arrangement? I asked, staring up at the impossibly imposing figure before me. Come on, he said. He gave me a pat on the back. I shuddered as the freezing cold fingers dug into my flesh, if only a brief moment. A trip down memory lane is required. I followed him through the kitchen and into the hallway, momentarily losing focus when I noticed how utterly dark it was outside. Then regaining it again when I spotted a massive hole in the wall just outside the living room. I stood in absolute silence just staring at it. It wasn't there before, was it? No, definitely not. I would have remembered that man-sized hole in the wall. Surely, that's not something you just forget. You couldn't figure it out, could you? He said, peering into the hole. Where the sounds came from? Rats in the walls? Wolves in the walls? Couldn't sleep? Couldn't eat? Couldn't leave it alone? Just had to fix it. No, no, that's... I said, blinking erratically. That's not what happened. That's not true. Sure it is, Wolfie. Sure it is. He said darkly, staring at me. You went all Looney Tunes when you couldn't eat your cereal in peace and tore into the wall with a sledgehammer. I mean, I get it. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day, after all. No, I didn't. I edged back, confused. I mean, I can't remember. I... I can't. The thing is, Wolfie, he said, it's dangerous to tear down walls when you don't know what you're doing. Some of those suckers are load-bearing, you know? Sure. It might be structurally sound for a little while, but imagine your wife coming home in the dead of the night, all tired and grumpy from a long strenuous shift. Then she notices there's a giant flipping hole in the wall, and she's like, what in the everlasting damnation has Wolfie been up to? And pops in to take a gander, and bumps into the wrong thing, and then, boom. The roof suddenly collapses on her squishy body, splitting her skull open like a ripe melon. Blood steadily flowing into a pool in the corner, slowly seeping down, down, down. Oh man, wouldn't that be something? I swallowed deeply, tears manifesting in my eyes out of nowhere, my hands trembling like crisp autumn leaves, heart pounding out of my chest. No, I murmured weakly. It couldn't. That's not what happened. The man snickered and pointed to the hole. Just one way to find out, Wolfie boy. He said, just take a quick look and then we can talk. It only took a moment for me to peer into the hole, but it was the longest moment of my life. Dust swirled in hypnotizing patterns within the small cramped hole and in the corner I saw a massive pile of rubble, bricks, boards, nails, a pair of unnaturally pale feet sticking out, wearing Dash's shoes that I got for her on her birthday that year when they were on sale, so cheap, half price, and the blood. Oh my god, the blood. So much blood. Oceans of it splitting off into creeks, rivers, all leading to the corner, seeping down, down, down. No, I cried. Dasha, no. Please God, no. I don't know why, but I started clearing the debris, diving onto the pile, throwing stones and bricks and boards every which way. She was long dead. Every last part of me knew that. But it didn't matter doesn't matter. You have to be sure. Gotta be sure. Can't let there be a doubt. It's my fault. My fault. My god. Oh, Dasha. It's all my fault. It is your fault. The man chuckled. That's how these things usually go, wolfy boy. Guilt. Despair. Damnation. Anguish. 
All the sweet emotions you mistake for love. It's not love, Wolfgang. It's self-preservation. You can't handle the pain, so you come to me for the absolute solution. Shut up, I yelled. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Excuse me? He held up his hand dramatically. Just spitting the truth over here. Didn't mean anything by it. Let me know when you're ready to talk about our arrangement. I collapsed on the pile, sobbing inconsolably. Arrangement? I sniffed. What do you mean? He laughed heartily. Wolfgang, Wolfgang, how have you not caught on yet? I'm a dealmaker by trade. Surely you've gathered that much by now. You mean... I dried my tears and stared at him. You mean you can save her? Oh, I do apologize, he said grinning widely. You still seem to be under the impression that this is the first time we're having this conversation. This one is on me, Wolfie boy. Temporal snafu at all. What do you mean? I yelled hysterically. Can you just fucking tell me already? He crouched down in front of me. This isn't our first talk, Wolfgang. In fact, I've lost count, but I'm guessing we're up to hundreds by now. It always ends the same, but I do like to check up on my clients, you know, in case they're experiencing dealer's remorse. What talk? I whispered. What are you offering me? He laughed again. Your wife, sweet perfect Dasha, of course. I can give her back, just like that. He snaps his fingers. But there's a catch. Always a catch. I sat up, meeting his unflinching gaze. What? I asked. My soul? You want my soul? Just take it. Whatever would I do with that? He chuckled. Then what? What do you want? It's real simple, he said. You can have a glimpse of her. A few minutes every morning before she leaves for work. That's all. Some back and forth banter. A kiss on the cheek, then a goodbye. And then you'll wake up, discovering her body all mashed up to a tasty, sludgy corpse juice. Go through all this again. All the horror, the guilt, the pain, all the suffering. All that for five minutes of her. Hardly seems worth it, does it? I nodded weakly. It's worth it. I said, it will be worth it. It will always be worth it. Well then... He grinned. Who am I to stand in the way of your perpetual self-inflicted torment? He grabbed my hand and shook it vigorously. I'll see you tomorrow, Wolfie boy, he said. Always a pleasure. He disappeared into the hole without a sound, leaving me a sobbing, convulsing mess on top of the crushed corpse of my wife. My sweet, perfect Dasha, I'll never let you go. I'll always choose the agony. There is no compromise, no option, no other way. Before I go back, before I lose myself, I have to remind myself, have to remember, always remember, never let it go, never let her go. It is worth it. It is worth it.